verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, as in the Sanhedrin, a good, righteous man. So here is a some member of the council of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who actually is a righteous man. He has actually listened to Jesus. He's responded in faith. He's produced fruit. And he has given up and will give up a lot when he does what he does on this day. Because whatever he has been doing, whether he has been out in the open to this day or in the shadows in his faith, on this day is going to become very clear who he belongs to as he goes to Pilate. And so he, was not cons- he had not consented to their plan of action. And so he first showed fruit by not, well, I'm not saying that's his first fruit, but the first fruit recorded in the Bible, that by not going along. He was from the Judean town of Arimathea and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb and cut it out of rock, where no one had been buried. So he had a tomb, a wealthy tomb. Now, what it means that no one had been buried? Most people, the 99% of the people in the Jerusalem at this time are poor. And they would have family burial sites where the entire family was laid there. Only really the 1% could actually afford to have their own tomb. And so he puts them in his own tomb. What does this look like? What they do is they would lay you either out, the Jews, not all, not everybody in the ancient world. The Jews would lay you out outside on a stone slab or inside of a tomb. And they would lay you out on a slab and they would wrap you in linen cloth and then they would um, put spices and, um, and, and oils and that kind of stuff on you. So that over the next year or so that your flesh would begin to rot off. So you would begin to decompose. Which gives you a whole new insight to Lazarus. Can you imagine after like four days the decompose, like all that setting in and he's coming out on that wrapped up in you ever thought about him trying to come out of the tomb all wrapped up like that like Jesus come out and you're like that's kind of insensitive Jesus like did Jesus make it all drop off or did he like levitate him up if you've ever been in Lazarus tomb it's like a dinky little holding I mean I had to crouch down to get through and you're like he came out that and like there that was a miracle just getting out of the tomb was a miracle so anyways that was a digression they would lay you out and you would begin to rot all your organs, the tissue, the flesh, the muscles, everything would rot off. And then they would come in later when there was nothing but bones and they would gather all your bones up. And they would put you in a little stone box called an ossuary. And an ossuary was a stone box and it was the size of your femur from your hip to your knee bone because it's the largest bone, the longest bone in your body. And so that's all the longer it has to be. And they would put it there and they would throw you in there, and then they would put your, your ossuary up like in a cubby hole in the tomb. And if you're a family, you would all be put in that. Now, if you're really poor, multiple family members would be thrown in the same ossuary. And this is why the First Testament says that David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these different people were gathered together with their forefathers. They literally were. They would literally rot their, their flesh off over a year or so. Then they would take the bones up and gather them together, open up Abraham's box and throw Isaac in, and then open it up and throw Jacob in, and then open it up like... Now, there were exceptions where they got their... Some of them got their own tombs, but you, when the box filled up, you get a new one. So, and so they, they gather the fathers. So a rich person would get their own ossuary, maybe their own tomb, maybe a few family members in there. So this is what they're doing. 
They're, they're hoping, they're, they're throwing Jesus on this slab so that they can come back later to gather him up and put him in a box. You kind of get an idea of this in um, Schindler's List. If you've, if you've been to Israel, on the Mount of Olives, there's all these ossuaries. Those are bigger because those are wealthier, more modern people. If you've seen Schindler's List, never been to Israel, watch Schindler's List at the very end. They, they show the Jews going up and putting the rocks on the ossuaries. And that's a more recent tradition that the Jews do. The, the mind-blowing part of this is they're going in to finish this burial process because the Sabbath was rushing them. And they're expecting to find Jesus there. And they're going to come back a year later or so to gather his bones up and then put him in the ossuary. Yet he never gave them that chance. And so this is how they would bury people in that kind of sense. So Joseph of Arimathea is doing this. It was day of the preparation of the Sabbath was beginning, and the women who had accompanied Jesus from Galilee followed, and they said they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it, and then they returned and prepared aromatic spices and perfumes. It is only Joseph of Arimathea and the women who are really sticking with Jesus. And what's ironically, ironic is that the wealthy guy that Christ has been condemning constantly, the well, is actually the one who's there. And the women who have no social status or very little are the one there. And yet the men who are chosen by Christ are the ones who fled, except for John at the cross. And they're the ones not there to help prepare Jesus' body. And so this is significant. And there are multiple cases here in Luke and in other Gospels, multiple times where it says the women went there, they saw the tomb, they saw where he was buried, they, were, they, they helped lay him down. So there's no like, oh, the women were so distraught that they got confused and accidentally went to the wrong tomb. Well, remember, they also put Roman soldiers there to guard it. And so they would have seen like, oh, wait a minute, there's no Roman soldiers here. There's all these things that point to it. But once again, remember in Luke and all the Gospels, the women are the hero. And we saw this all throughout the First Testament. The, 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 the people of power are often the ones who are cut down. They're the ones that the Bible goes out of its way to demonstrate the fact that they are sinners and fallen. But it's the people without power, the women, the poor, the foreigners. They're the ones that the Bible constantly lifts up. Not saying that they are better than the wealthy and the powerful and the men. Not saying that if you're poor and you have no power and you're a foreigner and you're a woman that you are more righteous. It's just that Christ is showing a new world, a new age, where they're all equal. They're all equal. And that the people who have power typically are more corrupt because power corrupts. And that is the heart of sin. And the people who are without it tend to be more open to the things of God. It's not a golden rule, but it tends to be. And what Christ is showing is that the people that we typically lift up and see as powerful and having it all and being worthy, those are the ones he notches down and points out their sins and failures. And the people that we typically see as having no power and not being worthy, those are the ones he ends up lifting up. So in the end, they're all equal. And he says, but you all need to repent. And you all need to come to Christ. And you're all welcome. And it's possible for all of you. And when you do that and surrender to me, you all become equal in the body of Christ. All saved, all redeemed for all eternity. And this is what the Bible is doing. It is not pro the power and male and any kind of stuff. And yet it's not pendulum swinging into a wokeness either. It is just equalizing everyone as image of God. 
all worthy of coming to Christ on the same criteria of merely faith and surrendering and then saying, heaven is open to you. In me, there are many rooms. If that were not true, I would have told you otherwise. And this is the point that Christ is making with this final statement. What day did Jesus actually die on? We talked about this back in Leviticus. There are three major festivals that are happening during the week of Jesus' death and resurrection. These are all detailed out in Leviticus chapter 23. And the first festival is Passover, which we've already talked about going through the book of Luke and that kind of stuff. And Passover was the day that you would sacrifice a lamb in order to remember the escaping Egypt and not coming under the wrath of God when he killed the firstborn of every single family. According to Leviticus chapter 23, this is a one-day festival celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. Nisan was the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. And you were to celebrate this on the 14th of Nisan, and you were to sacrifice the lamb and put his blood on your doorpost and then eat the lamb and eat no bread with yeast or honey in it, which is called unleavened bread. And then because that morning they were going to be fleeing for their lives. So that night, the angel of death would come and kill the firstborn of everyone. If you had the blood of the lamb on your doorposts, then the wrath of God would pass over you. And then that morning they were going to flee Egypt. The second festival is what's called unleavened bread. And we've talked about this one too when we were dealing with the Passover of Jesus. And unleavened bread was supposed to be celebrated on the 15th of Nisan, the day after the, four, the 14th, the day after Passover. On the 15th of Nisan, you were to celebrate the unleavened bread week festival. This is a seven-day festival, and you were not allowed to work, and you had to rest on the first day of that festival, which is the 15th, making it another Sabbath So you, that week making it a high, what's called a high Sabbath, or a Sabbath rest that week. And then you would, for the next six days after that, you were not allowed to eat anything with yeast in it. So that's why it was called Unleavened Bread Festival. The third festival was to be celebrated the Sunday after the Passover. The Sunday after the Passover. And this is called First Fruits. And this is where they get the first of their barley harvest, to God as an offering. And this was basically to commemorate the entering of, into the promised land. The fact that God gave them the promised land, which means now they can plant barley, which means now they can harvest and eat it, this is all a gift from God. Now they never celebrated the First Fruits Festival until 40 years later when they actually entered in the promised land because you can't celebrate if you have no land and you have no crop. And so when they entered the promised land and Joshua chapters 6 and 7 and 8, then um, God said, you now must start doing the, fir the First Fruits Festival. So that means that the 14th of Nisan is going to be a different day of the week every year, like our Christmas. The Christmas on the 25th, and it's a different day of the week every single year. That means the amount of time between f Passover and First Fruits is always going to be a different amount of days. Okay, So if you have the 14th of Nisan is on a Monday... You're going to have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, six days until you get to First Fruits because it's on the Sunday always. 
If you have Passover on a Saturday, then you have Sunday, one day, until you get to the First Fruits Festival. Does that make sense? We're not actually told what day of the weeks that the dates of the calendar were the week that Jesus crucified. We're not told that he that it was the 14th on Sunday or it was the 16th on Friday or something like that. We're not told that. We're not even told the day of the week that he died on. The only thing we know is that the weekly Sabbath, the one that happens every single week, is on a Saturday. And we're told specifically that the women discovered the empty tomb on a Sunday because Jesus rose from the grave on that Sunday. So those are the only days of the week that we know for sure that anything was happening on. And we're never given any dates of the month calendar and what day of the week that they're matching up with that week. That's it. The other thing i got to talk about first is a Jewish day begins at sunset. So when the sun begins to go down, that's the beginning of the next day. And so the next day, the day is evening and the morning. And the reason they believe that the day begins in the evening when the sun is setting is because in Genesis chapter 1, we're told, and there was evening and there was morning after each day. There was evening and there was morning. Those words evening and morning mean disorder and order. So God was taking the disorder and making it into order, but then they also became markers for the beginning of the day and the end of the day, evening and morning. Now, I know you think it's weird that the day begins in the evening, but remember our day begins at midnight. And that's just as weird. There is evening in the morning. So the black bars here represent the evening, the nighttime, and the white space represents the daytime so that you can see that the day begins in the night and ends with the day. And so this is the calendar week. So the question is, when did Jesus die based on these festivals? We know that the weekly Sabbath began on the evening of Saturday, and it ended in the evening of the next day, Sunday. This is the weekly Sabbath. This is detailed out in the Torah that the seventh day of the week will always be the Sabbath. And Saturday is the seventh day of the week. That we know for sure. So what we think of as Friday evening is actually the beginning of Saturday for them. That therefore is the beginning of the Sabbath rest for them. So the minute the sun goes down... They had to start resting. This is why they had to get Jesus' body off the cross before the sun set. Because to get him off the cross and to bury him would be work. And that would be a violation of the Sabbath. So they were thinking, the Sabbath begins at sunset. So we have to be done with all of our work and him buried in the tomb before that sun goes down. So this is the weekly Sabbath. We are told in the Bible that first fruits is the Sunday after the Passover. And we know the resurrection happened on Sunday after the Passover, the Sunday after Jesus' death. That was the resurrection. So these are the two things that we can know for sure. Okay, Weekly Sabbath on Saturday, resurrection on Sunday. Weekly Sabbath on Saturday is detailed out in the Torah, and all the Gospels tell us that Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. The question is, when did Jesus die? So traditionally, according to the traditional view, when we read it, we're told that they had to get Jesus off the cross before the Sabbath began, that sunset. So this has led people to believe that Passover happened on a Friday 
and that was the day that Jesus died. And that makes sense. Logically speaking, that makes sense. Because if he had to be off the cross before Saturday began, then he would have to be dying on Friday, which then that makes the Passover. That means that Friday is the 14th of Nisan, Saturday is the 15th of Nisan, and Sunday is the 16th of Nisan. And that's our traditional view, the one that we've been growing up in and we've held for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, that this is the way that it happened. Does this make sense? This is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that he died on the day before the Sabbath. His body had to be taken off the cross before the Sabbath began. The Sabbath is on Saturday. He rose from the grave on Sunday. Therefore, he died on a Friday. Okay? Therefore, he died on a Friday. That's what the Bible tells us. That's how we've interpreted it. But Jesus also tells us that he was going to be in the grave for three days and three nights. So if we count this, if he died on Friday during the day, then that means that this, that night, Saturday evening, which happens in the beginning of the Saturday, is one, and then Sunday evening, which is the beginning of the day, night, is two. So it puts him in the grave for two nights. Okay, The night of Saturday Sabbath and the night of Sunday, which, remember, the night begins before the day. And then he's in the grave for Saturday day and Sunday day. That's two days. Now, some people will say, yeah, okay, but they got him in the grave before that night began, the new day began. So he was in the grave for maybe about 30 minutes or an hour um, before that evening began. So that counts as a partial day. So there you go. You have three days. The problem is you still cannot get three nights out of that. There's no way you can get three nights out of this. And we know this, like we were like, oh, I was on vacation for three days and you came back like on the third day and you came back like in the morning or something like that. You count that as three days. So we're used to that. But still like 30 minutes, I don't know, when it's really kind of sun setting. But even if you take that, you still cannot get three nights out of this scenario. So that means this would seem to communicate that Jesus is completely inaccurate in what he's saying three days and three nights. But the Bible tells us that he's dying the day before the weekly Sabbath because he had to be off the Sabbath. So which one is right, the Bible or Jesus? The problem is that Jesus is wrong. We have no salvation, no hope of salvation because he's not perfect. But if the Bible is wrong, then everything we know about Jesus comes from the Bible. And if it's not accurate, then Jesus is not accurate. And what we know about him is not accurate. Therefore, we have no hope of salvation. So this puts us in a huge conundrum, but tradition. That's all that matters, right? (laughs) However, if you read that boring little book of Leviticus that nobody likes to read because it's tedious and law-oriented and we're not under it anymore and therefore why spend my time doing this, which we did together as a group, and most of you who are here for this probably remember the basis for this, then Leviticus 23 reconciles the contradiction. Leviticus chapter 23 reconciles the contradiction. So let's go back to the view based on Leviticus chapter 23. We know that the weekly, we know that the weekly Sabbath happened on a Saturday. We know that Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday. And we know that first fruits resurrection happened on Sunday. Rather than starting with they had to get his body off before the Sabbath, therefore he died on a Friday, let's go with Jesus' statement. So Jesus isn't going to be in the grave for three days and three nights. 
So that puts it on Thursday. So therefore, the Passover is happening on the Passover and the death of Jesus is happening on Thursday. That means, according to this view, the 14th of Nisan is the Thursday. The 15th of Nisan is a Friday. The 16th of Nisan is a Saturday. And the 17th of Nisan is a Sunday. So now we're, we're accurate according to Jesus' statement. He's dying on Thursday, the 14th of Nisan. And then he's raising from the gra- grave on Sunday. So that gives you three days and three nights in the grave. The night of Friday, the beginning of the day, one. The night of Saturday, the beginning of the day, two. The night of Sunday, the beginning of the day, three. And then that also gives you three days, the Friday, the Saturday, and the Sunday in the grave. Okay, We're not told how late in the morning the women actually went to the tomb. So once again, with that view, you still get like a partial day on that one. So it's three days and three nights. The problem with this now is he's not being taken off the cross the day before the Sabbath. Now we have an, int- or the, the, as the, he's not being taken off the cross right before the Sabbath is ready to begin. Now we have a whole day between the death of Christ and then him being taken off the cross before the Sabbath begins between those two things. Except that what happens the day after Passover? What festival happens the day after Passover? Unleavened bread. The unleavened bread festival. And we're told very specifically on the first day of the unleavened bread festival is to be a high Sabbath. You are not allowed to work and not allowed to do anything, and you are to take that day and rest as if it was a Sabbath. That means that every single year during this week of unleavened bread, there's always two Sabbaths that week. It's a double Sabbath. Every single year during this unleavened bread, because you're going to have your weekly Sabbath on Saturday, and then you're going to have an unleavened bread Sabbath. That means that the Friday is an actual Sabbath that week. And it means that Jesus is dying right before the Sabbath begins. And they had to get his body off the cross as the sun is setting before the Sabbath begins. And then they would go through the entire Friday of unleavened bread Sabbath. And then they would go through the entire Saturday of weekly Sabbath, which means they still can't go to the tomb because that would be working. And then on Sunday, they would arrive and they would discover the tomb is empty because Jesus rose from the grave. And therefore, he is rising from the grave on Sunday and the day after Sabbath, which they can go to. And so this is a double Sabbath that week. Because the Bible specifically tells us that the reason they went on Sunday to tend to the tomb was because they could not go to the tomb until after the Sabbath was over with. So this works. This is very important to understand Because now we have the Bible being completely accurate. He has to get off the cross before the Sabbath begins. They cannot go to the tomb until after the Sabbath ends, the double Sabbath. And Jesus is accurate because he's in the grave for three days and three nights. And therefore, neither one are misleading you. And they're completely accurate. And it can only be figured out by the book of Ludovicus. So that means that Jesus would have eaten the Passover meal on Wednesday. Because he was eating the Passover meal on Wednesday, then the next that night, the, the beginning of Thursday, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with the disciples and then being betrayed by Judas and then being arrested and put on trial so that 
by the time that the sun is rising on Friday, he's being carrying the beam, or Simon Cyrene is carrying the, the horizontal beam to the crucifixion site. So yes, yeah, so you'd be doing that Wednesday. But remember, that would have not been weird for the early Jews because this whole week would have been considered unleavened bread. Or maybe they were thinking, it is weird because the Passover week doesn't begin until leaven and that's on Thursday and Friday. And so maybe they would be questioning why we're doing this on Wednesday. But we're not given insight in how much they're questioning on the day that they were doing it on. Now remember, this isn't some secret mystery for most people throughout all of history because every single Jew knows the Torah really well. Every single Jew is practicing these festivals every single year. And by the time we get to Jesus, this is steeped into their DNA. They know the Torah. Most men have had the Torah memorized by the time they become 12 years old. Every single family, old and young, man and woman, are all doing these festivals every single year in a very religious and methodical kind of a way. So this would have not been a mystery to them or like some secret hidden key that unlocks the mystery. They wouldn't be that for them. It would just be common knowledge. It would be the routine of their life. It is only us post all these years and all this Jewish tradition and kind of unintentionally divorcing ourselves from Leviticus that we are left with, wow, we don't really know how to reconcile this. This is important for you to understand. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to understand this in order to be saved. Our salvation is not dependent upon this. Our relationship with Christ is not dependent upon this idea. However, there are a lot of people who throw contradictions at us in our face and say, well, if you believe the Bible is trustworthy and true, then what about this contradiction? What about this contradiction? And this is one that pops up a lot on atheist websites. I've had students go off to college and be atheists to throw this in their face and that kind of stuff, and they don't have answers. In some ways, this, your salvation in relation with Christ is not dependent upon this idea and knowing this, but in other ways, it kind of is. Because if you realize, oh, wow, this is a contradiction in the Bible. He's not in the grave for three days and three nights. Then you might actually chuck the salvation. You might chuck the religion of Christianity and walk away from Christ because he obviously is not accurate and not true. And you could walk away from it. Or this could be the very thing that helps somebody realize, oh, it actually isn't a contradiction. It might open the doorway for them to accept Christ. And so now, but remember, you can't like argue or logically reason anybody into heaven. Usually people are just giving excuses because they're either genuinely interesting and searching, and therefore you having reasonable answers will help them, or they're just making up things because they just don't ultimately want to bow down and surrender. But you don't know which one they are. And you don't know how God is going to use that. So why was the unleavened even discounted in the traditional view? Questions: Why was the unleavened bread festival discounted in the traditional view? One, because we don't read Leviticus and really study it. But two, the early Catholics were anti-Semitic. And they were anti-Semitic because they killed Jesus. And Paul and Acts clearly left the Jews and went to the Gentiles. So they're no longer a part of the people of God. And all the First Testament has been fulfilled. So why should we bother wasting our time with if it's all been fulfilled? 
we'll still go back for the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Gideon and Samson and Joseph and David because those are good life moral lessons that we can learn. But when it comes to the law, why read it? Because it's all been fulfilled. And after all, we are a Second Testament church or a New Testament church. And we don't really often hear sermons on the First Testament law that much. Now, I'm not saying that no pastor from whatever church you come from hasn't done that. But traditionally, throughout Catholic history and throughout Protestant history, there's not a lot of sermons coming out of the law books. We get sermons out of the stories, the narratives, but not out of the law books and definitely not the prophets. Because why go there? This mixture of anti-Semitism, this mixture of the law and everything being fulfilled, and the mixture of we are a New Testament church and we follow Christ has just led to this idea. The other thing I would say, too, is remember that from, for most of human history, really up until probably, relatively speaking, the 1920s, 99% of the humanity has been illiterate. When they're illiterate, they're not going to be, if you're not a Jew and you're a Christian who came to the faith later, you're not going to be reading the Bible and studying it. You're completely dependent upon the verbal tra traditions where the Jews would be verbally passing down the Torah because it's, that's everything to them. Remember, the law is the way that they connect to God. But for the Christian who's not under the law, according to Peter and Paul and James and John, who's writing the Second Testament, why would you be memorizing and reciting Leviticus and you wouldn't be reading it because you're illiterate? So what you're completely dependent upon is stories or stained glass windows. And it's much easier to do a stained glass window or a story from a narrative than it is legal laws. And so it's not going to be really until the late medieval period that the printing press is even invented. But even then, you're only going to be able to print off enough books for the elite who can actually afford the paper and who can actually go to school to learn how to read and write all the way up into the colonial days in the early 1900s, most Americans were still literate. Okay, so really the literacy doesn't become predominant in America until around the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Starting there, it starts growing till the vast majority of us are now literate. And then now with the Industrial Revolution of the late 1800s, we can now mass produce books for very cheaply. And now we can have a Bible in every... But now that you've got a Bible in everybody's hands, so to speak, traditions die hard. And after all these hundreds of years of people being illiterate and not going to the law because you can't really communicate that very well through stories, and most people can't read it, and we're a New Testament church, and we're not Jewish, and God has fulfilled the law, you put all those things together, and it's no wonder we don't give it any primacy or importance in, in our faith. And then, now that we can read it, and we've got a Bible in every hand, well, we live in the pinball machine of America, where it's all about being whacked from this program to that program to that program, that activity and that activity, and we're blinded by the lights of entertainment. Well, I just don't have time to read that boring book. I'd rather go watch a movie and have my hair blown back or do a TikTok video, right? Or go do sports or something like that. And so, now that we actually have the book to read. See, back like in Little House in the Prairie Colonial time, they had tons of time to read, but not as many copies of the Bible in everybody's hand. Now we have copies in everybody's hand, but we've now filled every minute of our day with some activity or program or entertainment 
that we don't have time to read. That's my evaluation in a nutshell on that, why we don't read. But does that kind of make sense? It makes sense. 